0: Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on June 5th, 2016, on the basis of Genesis 3, verses 8 through 15. I've shared with you before the observation that in the world of literature, the normal way that it works is that you pick up a book, and as the reader, it is your goal to try and understand the book. And yet, in the case of one very notable exception, in the case of the Bible, you, the reader, pick up the book and quickly find out that it is actually the book that understands you. I've been a fan of that observation for quite a while now and I I can't help but think that the part of God's word about which that statement is most true is the word of God that's in front of us today. These verses from Genesis chapter 3. Now, it's not at all a secret that a lot of people really struggle with the contents of these very first three chapters of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because these chapters tell the story of how the universe and how human life began. According to these chapters, God created absolutely everything out of absolutely nothing in six regular, ordinary, 24-hour days. According to these chapters, all human life Every man, woman, and child of every shape and every size and every color all descended from the same common parents, Adam and Eve. And so a lot of people, of course, prefer to see these chapters as as a fairy tale or a fable or fantasy, anything but fact. And I suppose in the interest of fairness, one of the main characters in Genesis chapter 3 Is a talking snake after all. But you know, if people really struggle with this idea that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 tell a true account of real history, maybe one thing that we could say to them is this. Let's just assume for a minute that these chapters are in fact true. That God did really create everything out of nothing and that all of us have descended from the same two parents, Adam and Eve. If that is the case, then as we turn our attention to these chapters, we would expect to find in Adam and Eve two human beings who have characteristics that you and I also have. And as we hear about how the devil successfully tempts them and leads them into sin, we would expect to see that he does so in a way that is still very much effective and very much successful with us after they've fallen into sin, we would expect them to deal with that sin and cope with that sin and handle that sin in a way that you and I still do today. And as God approaches them about that sin, we would expect him to act with them in a way that he still does with us today. In other words, if these chapters are are really true, you would expect to find a story that is not peculiar to one specific time and one specific place but a story that is truly universal, a story that even thousands of years later still includes and even explains you and me sitting here today. And friends, that is exactly what you find. A careful study of Genesis chapter 3 teaches things about human psychology and human sociology that even the experts fail to grasp. You find out what makes a human being really tick. You find out why we so often rebel against God. You find out why we treat each other poorly the way that we sometimes do. You find out why people cope with their sin the way that you do. And finally, you find out how God intervenes and how God rescues us from all of those things the way that he does. In other words, as we look at these verses and and see so many of the things that happened for the very first time, from the first temptation to the first sin, to the first human response to sin, to the first divine response to sin, all of those are things that happened not only for the first time, they are things that happened for the first of many times to follow all the way up to today. That's what we'll see as we look at these verses today. And as we do, we pick it up at verse 8 and realize what had just happened. Adam and Eve had just been tempted by the devil and they had just fallen into sin. They had just eaten from that tree of knowledge of good and evil that God had told them not to. And so now the question that these verses answer is, now what? What is the solution to this problem that Adam and Eve have brought into the world? And of course, we see that Adam and Eve have their own idea for a solution And that solution is simply to take cover. They start by taking cover behind fig leaves that they sew into clothing for themselves, really as an attempt to hide from one another. Then God comes into the garden and they use the trees of the garden as cover in an attempt to try and hide from God. And then finally, when God confronts them in their sin, they use excuses, they use blaming, they even use blaspheming God as their cover to try and escape the guilt over the things that they've done. So notice the remarkable change that the first sin caused in Adam and Eve. First of all, it drastically changed their relationship with God. I mean, up until this point, God had been so good to them. He had created them and given them to one another in marriage He had placed them in this beautiful garden and given them the privilege of taking care of it. He had given them the ability and the opportunity to fill the entire world with people by having children. God had been so, so good, but now they hear the sound of the Lord's footsteps in the garden and to them it sounds like like a police siren. And it instantly fills them with fear, instantly causes them to want to hide from God, even though he had been so, so good to them. So their sin has changed their relationship with God. Their sin has also changed their relationship with their enemy, their foe, the devil. Up until this point, it had been the devil who was the one pointing an accusing finger at God, blaming and blaspheming God for problems. You might recall that's how he had tempted Adam and Eve. He said to them, you, you can't trust God. God must not love you. God has something good that he is withholding from you by telling you that you can't eat from this tree. Well now, not only had Adam and Eve listened to the devil, but they had become fluent in his language. Adam actually points the accusing finger at God and says, The woman that you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate. So because of that very first sin, Adam and Eve ran away in terror from their God and they were speaking the language of their enemy. In other words, that sin had caused them to be afraid of their father and had caused them to become friends with their foe. Like I said, that was the first time that happened, but just the first of many. See, Adam and Eve's behavior... Reveals something that is also very true of you and me. It reveals that as human beings, we have a very deep seated desire for two important things the desire to be known and the desire to be loved. In other words, for most of us, we would rather go through life not alone, not all by ourselves, but with someone. We want to share things with other people. We want to share our lives with other people. We want to be known by them. And we want those people, in turn, to love and accept and approve of us for who we are. But, of course, we realize that when sin enters the picture, we can't really have both. Because if someone really knew everything about us, maybe they wouldn't love us anymore. So you've got those two, and given the choice, we'd probably prefer to be loved, which means that we become very good at not being known. Just like Adam and Eve, we take cover. We hide. And it's so easy to do, isn't it? To hide from the world around us, to To hide from people in the workplace and at school and in other situations, to only put out there the very best version of ourselves and to hide the truth. Right? It's easy to hide who you are from from casual acquaintances, certainly. It's even pretty easy to hide things about who you are from even the closest of friends. It's a little bit tougher to hide things from your family, but even then it's certainly possible. I mean, is there a more terrifying thought for any of us than if all of our acquaintances, all of our casual connections would suddenly know everything that right now only our close friends know? Or what if suddenly all of our close friends knew everything that our family knows? Or what if our family knew the things that only we know? Or what if everyone Knew everything, And of course, deep down, we know that in one instance, in one case, that's exactly the truth, that there is one eye that sees everything, one person from whom we cannot escape. And when we think about that, when we are confronted with that truth, then, then I think at times we, too, become very good at speaking the language of our enemy, of pointing the finger back up at God and blaming him, for our rebellion, saying, God, your plan for my life, the way you want me to live, your guidance for how I should think and act and speak, well, it's just not right. It's not best. It's not fair. You know, it sort of reminds me of of what you might see on TV or or in a movie where uh, someone has been accused of some sort of crime and they get arrested and, and hauled in for interrogation. And the individual knows that he's guilty of the crime and the detective who's questioning knows that he's guilty of that crime. And so the detective is constantly and repeatedly trying to say to him, you know, it'll just be easier for you. It'll be better for you if you would just fess up to what you've done. Just cooperate and confess your sin. And yet in spite of all of that, the perpetrator holds on to some sort of irrational hope that if he just keeps hiding, if he just keeps denying the truth that somehow he will escape his guilt, that's what happened for the first time with Adam and Eve. But, but again, that was just the first of many. It's what our sin does to us. It makes us afraid of our Father and makes us friends with our foe. And so thankfully, God stepped in. Can you put yourself in God's shoes? For a minute after all of this blaming and excusing had been going on, there they are, the three of them, Adam, Eve, and the devil. And they have made it very clear that they were allied with one another together against God. And so the three of them should have been like people standing before a firing squad in front of the almighty ruler of the universe. Boom, boom, boom. One, two, three, let's start from scratch is what God should have done and could have done. But instead, God says, I'm going to rearrange things here. I'm going to reshuffle this deck. I'm going to rearrange the pieces on this chessboard and I am going to bring Adam and Eve back to my side. He looks right at the devil and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel." Maybe you know a little bit about that passage. It's kind of a big one in the Old Testament. It's actually God's first declaration of war against the devil and it's also the first indication God gives of how he's going to go about winning that war. One of Eve's own descendants, one born of a woman, would eventually crush the head of the devil, defeat the devil for all mankind even though it would come at great cost And great pain to himself. That verse, Genesis 3, verse 15, is actually the first promise of Jesus, the first promise of our Savior. Now you might look at those words and say, I don't know that I see it. Why would God be so cryptic? Why would He be so vague? Why didn't He just come out and say, Jesus Christ will die on the cross for your sins? as we look at this promise, we realize that God gave Adam and Eve exactly what they needed in that moment. Not anything more and not anything less. No, he didn't come out and spell out every last detail, but but what God did do is sort of provide almost like an empty bowl of a promise that over time, detail after detail could be put into So when God said that one of Eve's descendants, one born of a woman, would crush the head of the devil, sure enough, the fulfillment of that promise was one born of just a woman and not a man. He had no human father because he was true man and true God. When God promised that he would crush the head of the devil and the devil would strike his heel, sure enough, Jesus defeated the devil, not with brute force, not with raw power, but hidden behind weakness and suffering and apparent defeat. He would do so with his death on the cross. So God was giving them exactly what they needed. No more, no less. And in fact, we find out later that it worked. After speaking this curse against the devil, God actually turned to Adam and Eve. And he told them about how life was going to be different. How everything that had been so good would now be so bad. How their work in the garden would be frustrating. How childbearing would be painful. How their marriage relationship would be full of strife. What a difficult thing that would have been for them to hear. And yet they had, first and foremost, this promise. And so a little while later, Adam and Eve had a child. And sure enough, it was a boy. Do you know what Adam and Eve thought about that boy? They thought, here's the Savior. Of course, they were way, way off with that. Jesus wouldn't come for several hundred years, even thousands of years later, but it shows that God's promise had worked. God had found two people who were afraid of their father and God had given them faith in their father. Think about what that promise did in contrast for the foe, for the enemy. God says to the devil, one of Eve's descendants is going to crush your head. But he doesn't say who, he doesn't say when, and he doesn't say where. Can you imagine the thoughts that filled the devil's head after that as he was consumed by one question? Who's it going to be? I can only imagine that he wanted to be present at the birth of every single child born after that, waiting to see if it was a boy and wondering, is he the one how that promise taunted and tormented the devil from that point forward. And so look at what our good and gracious God is doing. He finds people who are afraid of their father and who are friends with their foe, and he gives them faith in their father and takes all of the fear and puts it on the foe. In the garden was the first time God did that, but again, just the first of many. You see, you and I are, are so, so good of acti- at acting like that, that person being interrogated, of, of irrationally holding on to hope that if somehow we just blame other people or make enough excuses or hide from who we really are, that somehow we can escape our guilt. And part of the reason we do it is because we often forget that there's a better solution. And so then God steps into that interrogation room to speak a word of comfort and promise to us. And he says, not only am I not going to charge you with that sin, but I have already taken that crime you've committed and I've charged my son. I've already taken that punishment that you deserve to pay and I've taken it out on my son. And so not only are you going to go free, not only are you forgiven, not only are you in line for a spot for eternal life, but because that sin has been paid for, no one can ever bring it against you Again, no one can ever charge you with that crime because the penalty has already been paid. And as God delivers that word of comfort to us, not only does it cause us to also put our faith in our Father, just like Adam and Eve, it gives us every reason to just drop the excuses, drop the hiding, drop the blaming. Why do we need those things anymore? God has provided the real solution to our sin. In fact, God steps in and provides this this word of comfort and this word of promise, and you and I find out that we have those two things that deep, deep down we desire, the desire to be known and the desire to be loved. With our Father in heaven, we have someone who knows us better than anyone, better than we even know ourselves, And yet we have someone who loves us, accepts us, approves of us more than we could ever imagine. All for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.